0: We also hear God's word this morning in our English Bibles, Acts 2, 1 through 13, and also uh, 37 to 47. Um, By the way, Acts 1, verse 8 already spells out what um, the disciples are to do. Jesus says there, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. So... The Holy Spirit has been given to give us new life for the purpose of witness. And we witness so that we may have more worshipers and more worshipers of God in the world. So we turn our attention to verses 1 through 13, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every, tr- from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each one in our own language, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. In the next section, Peter preaches his sermon, and his text is from Joel 2, 28-32, showing how uh, the Pentecost has fulfilled The prophecy of Joel. And then we read in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard the message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children. To all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually, daily, with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Our focus this morning is uh, from Acts 2, 1-13. through 13. Imagine if there were no Holy Spirit. If there were no Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, it would not be possible to disciple other people. After all, he's the one who gives life. The Father, God the Father created life. God the Son purchased that new life we need. And the Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. That's what we read in the Nicene Creed. And he's the one, he's the one who illumines, he's the one who opens our understanding of his word. He's the one who gives fellowship, true fellowship in the body of Christ. He's the one who gives the fruit of a Christ-like life. He's the one who gives the power to witness of Christ. All these gifts, right? all these gifts has been poured out upon the church at Pentecost church without the Holy Spirit is like a body without breath. It's a corpse. And without the Holy Spirit, the church would be a dead church. Do we know from the scriptures that Christ is risen from the dead? And he's the one who powerfully broke through the tomb at Easter? The proof is that he showed himself to many people for 40 days? And then he said to the disciples, But you know, 40 days... I'm going to go up into heaven. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. But you wait. You wait for the promise of the Father. The promise I shared with you way back when I was in the upper room with you. A comforter will come. A helper will come. And he will come not many days after. You stay in Jerusalem. Until then, Christ ascended. And sure enough, ten days later, ten days later, he with the Father... Son with the father poured out his spirit upon the church just as he promised. You know, it's vital. It's vital for her new life, for the witness in the world. A living church is a witnessing church. You cannot separate the two. I mean, the life of Christ in the church that is the witness not only speaking of words, but the, the life of Christ, the changing power of the gospel changes us. This is a Holy Spirit-filled church. Such a church is a Holy Spirit-filled church. And you see here in Acts 2, 1-13, that's where you really see the beginnings of that in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit gives new life. He's the one who gives new life for witness, for bold witness. That's the purpose of the new life is that we may witness, and the ultimate purpose is that more and more and more may be brought into the church to offer worship and praise to God. That's that's the glorious purpose of Pentecost. But the means is the witness, and the source is the new life. You know, that's also true for us today as a church in the city of Toronto. We have the power of the word. We see that in verses 1 through 4 the Word, which the Spirit uses. Second of all, we're going to see the table of nations, verses 5 through 13, how that ties in so closely to Genesis chapter 10 and the fulfillment there. And then third, we see the reversal of Babel, the curse of Babel, also in these same verses. But first of all, look at the power of the Word. We read verse 1 together. The day of Pentecost had fully come they were all filled with, sorry, they were all with one accord in one place. Let me read that again. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who are the they here? They were were all in one accord in one place. Who are the they? Well, the they would go back to chapter 1, verse 15. And there we read there are about 120 believers. So 120 believers, and that would also include the disciples. Something else here. They are the new Israel. The new Israel of God. Think back to the Old Testament, when God constituted the Old Testament church. Twelve tribes. And then the nation of Israel. But now you have twelve disciples. Duly constituted, Acts chapter 1. And they become the nation of the new Israel, a community of believers in one accord, in one place. And they are preparing to depart from Jerusalem to go out and conquer the world with the word of Jesus, with the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus has won. He has won the battle. And there's life. There's righteousness. There's holiness. That we may receive through faith in him. But not until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's why Jesus said, you wait. You wait. They're ready to go. But you wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. By the way, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church... He never leaves. He remains with the church all the way until the time when Christ returns. So the Holy Spirit is upon the church today. But you know, as with Christ, think about when the Holy Spirit came upon him in his baptism. He did not begin his task of conquering, of healing, of preaching, until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And now you see it in the church The Holy Spirit who descended upon Christ now descends upon the church and equips it for the task, for the ministry that's given to every believer. Every believer. Not just pastors, not just ministers, not just missionaries, but to every believer, young and old. And we read here they were in the upper room, or perhaps they were in the room in the temple. We don't know. But they were waiting. They are preparing. They are praying. Those days are over. We don't have to wait. The Spirit has been poured out. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, Pentecost, what is Pentecost? Again, we have to know the Old Testament. Otherwise, we fail to understand the New Testament. And we go back to the Old Testament, we come to discover from Exodus that Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. It was a harvest feast. The farmers would plant their grain, their wheat, and then it would come to a point where they could harvest that wheat. When they completed that harvest, then they celebrated the feast of Pentecost. So it's a harvest feast. And that occurred when? 50 days after the Passover. When was the Passover? The Passover celebrated the exodus Or celebrated the redemption of Israel from Egypt. Think of those 50 days. Fifty days also marks the the time from Christ's resurrection, (coughs) the Passover, to the time of the pouring of the Spirit, the completion of the harvest. But it's also something else here. It was also 50 days from the time Israel left Egypt till they reached Mount Sinai. 50 days. And what happened to Mount Sinai? God descended. The true and living God descended from on high, giving his people the Ten Commandments. He came to dwell among them, to be present among them. You read about the signs in Exodus 19 and 20. What signs accompany the presence of God among the people on the mountain? Fire, sounds of thunder, and a voice. So this is tremendous. No wonder... What happened at Pentecost caused great fear because God is coming down again. Not on a mountain this time, but upon the church. Fifty days later, from the time of the Passover, or you could say the Passover Easter, from the time that Christ arose from the dead and now marks the beginning of a great harvest, a worldwide harvest that starts then and will be completed at the time when Christ returns. Today is the day of harvest. And you'll notice what Luke is talking about here is more than just the coming of Pentecost, it's the fulfillment. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament Pentecost feast, it's fulfillment of what God did on Mount Sinai. It all verges now into the pouring out of the Spirit. That's the fulfillment. Of course, there's a greater fulfillment to come in Revelation. Again, when you see God coming down and taking his church to be in heaven. But uh, here you see the fulfillment in Acts 2 of the Old Testament feast. You see it in those words, right? Verses 2 and 4, it speaks of the house being filled with the rush of a mighty wind. He speaks of the house being filled, or the people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah, God the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. Sent from whom? The Father and the Son. God fulfills his Old Testament promises. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit in you. Or Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. Yeah, that's Pentecost, the fulfillment of the feast, the descent of the spirit, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And you notice here, if you look at verses 2, 3, and 4, his descent upon the church comes with three powerful signs. The same kind of signs you see on Mount Sinai. This is why there was such dread in the church. Fear, great fear, gripped the people. Because something of the awesome presence, the holy presence of God coming to dwell in his church. Those three signs, wind, fire, and tongues, speaking in tongues. So the sound, sorry, the wind, the fire, and the speech. Those three things, simple Wind, fire, and speech. And if you look at verse 6, we read about a voice. So you could say, putting it all together, the sound, the fiery tongues, the speaking in tongues, and then the understanding of the words of Peter by each person in his own language. All of this, to make it simple, all of this points to the power of the Word of God. Yeah, the power of. Of the word of God. That's what it all points to. These signs show the power of the gospel who gives life to dead people. Dead people like us. Dead people. Spiritually dead people. Who gives us life? Only the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit. Here at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit—you could say—announces Himself as the One who works through the Word. He works through the Word, giving this life. Think of wind. You know, preacher. Sorry, Peter preaches his word, preaches his sermon in Acts two fourteen through 41 and he uses the prophecy of Joel as his text. That sermon is the wind of the Spirit. That sermon is the wind of the Spirit. As the wind blows where it wills, the Holy Spirit also breathes new life into whom he wills. It's not ultimately our choice. It's the sovereign work of God. And you see it here at Pentecost. The church is a result of the breath of God. Breathe into the body of Christ, right? It is the new creation. It's very similar to what we read in Genesis chapter 2, right? God made man out of the dust of the ground. And what did God do? He breathed into man the breath of life. That's where life comes from. That's where the new life comes from. It comes from above. It comes from the Spirit. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who makes us born again. He's the one who produces those fruits, as we heard in the prayer this morning, those fruits of righteousness and holiness. It's all his work. Wind, breath, the breath of God, blowing through the word, the word of God. Another symbol he uses here is fire. Jeremiah 23 talks about his word is like a fire. What does fire do? Well, yeah, it can destroy, but fire can also be cleansing. It can be a purifying. And that's what you see here in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit uses the Word to do what? To convict. To convict us of our sin. If we're convicted of our sin, praise God, that the Spirit is at work in our lives. It's a sad thing when we never are convicted of our sin. We need to pray. Because this is the greatest work of the Holy Spirit. The greatest, most powerful work of the Holy Spirit is that he brings conviction of sin. And that's what Peter does. He preaches, and the word cuts to the heart. Acts 2, verse 37. It's a fire that purifies. It's holy. It's a holy presence of God which searches and finds out who we really are. And we see it and we come to acknowledge the need for Jesus. You notice know who Peter was addressing here? Christ killers. Those who crucified the Christ. And they're filled with bitterness. These were God's people, filled with bitterness, filled with anger, filled with jealousy. They were trapped in it. And there's no way they could get themselves out of it. They crucified the Christ. They put him to death. But the Holy Spirit, praise God, convicts them and causes them to see it. Yes, through Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit shows them the holiness of God and their great, great need for Jesus. Only he can wash away sins. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter does. They answer, what shall we do? Being cut to the heart. He said to them, he directs them to Jesus, the one who arose from the dead for our salvation, the one who promises forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit to all who believe and here you see those promises in baptism and also the Lord bringing the people to his table, washed cleansed, forgiven yes, the word is a wind, it breathes, it's the powerful wind of the spirit and it's also a fire, it purifies it cleanses But it also consumes. It also destroys. Think about a little later in Acts chapter 2. What seizes the people after they hear Peter's sermon? Fear. The Holy Spirit brought great fear upon the people. Peter was applying the words of Joel. And Joel also talks about a fire that consumes the blood, the fire, the pillar of smoke on all who do not come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, on all who do not come to Jesus seeing their need for the washing away of their sins. And that's why Peter says, be be saved from this perverse generation. Notice who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to the Gentiles. He's speaking to the covenant people of God. Be saved from this perverse generation. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, for us today, yeah, really the message of Pentecost begins with us here, doesn't it? Begins here with us. With us as God's people. Has the power of the word taken hold of your life? My life? Has it? Has it? You know, there are no times of refreshing. There is no renewal if we don't go to church, if we don't read our Bibles, if we don't engage our families in talking about the Lord and the things of the Lord. Yes, how does the Holy Spirit give life? Through the Word, through the Word, through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit uses the word to revive, to refresh, to renew covenant with families and churches. That's so foundational. That's what the word is showing us here. Go to Christ. If we feel lack, go to Christ. Remember, the spirit was poured out. There's an abundance in Christ. He's the one who produces that fruit of righteousness and holiness. But we must go to him. That means humbling ourselves. That means repenting. That means asking God to free us from whatever slavery we might be in, whatever bondage to sin we may be in. Asking him to free us from it. He has poured out his spirit upon the church. He's given us his spirit. Ah, uh, you see the first fruits of the harvest. Hey, the harvest right here. Of course, back then, 3,000 souls on that first Pentecost day, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church to advance Christ's kingdom throughout the world. But it begins with us. Evaluating, waiting, examining our lives, has the word taken hold of our lives? Because when it has, it will show forth in the life that the Holy Spirit has given us. You see, the risen Christ, he's ascended into heaven. He's the king of the nations. And what did he plan? He planned on that day that all the peoples from the nations of the world, all the nations of the earth, to be at that feast in Jerusalem on that Pentecost day. (laughs) Look at verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven, and then you come to verses 9, 10, and 11. You, you hear about the uh, the table of nations. called call it the table of nations or the catalog of nations that were present in Jerusalem on Pentecost. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, We hear them speaking in their own tongues. a wonderful work of God. That's what they were hearing. The word of God. The great works of God. In their own language. Now we don't recognize many of those nations today. But they were definitely the whole part of the, the Roman Empire back then. Which had different names carved out for them. But there are three things brought out here with the nations. First, Who were the people who heard Peter's Pentecost sermon? They were the covenant people. They were Jews. They were the the people of God who were there. But what's interesting is that they had come from all the other countries, the Jews, and had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Now, why were they in all the other countries? Well, again, it's helpful to know the Old Testament. Because 500 years before, 700 years before, remember when Judah went into exile and the Babylonians took them in the year 587? And then the the people of Israel back in 722, they were also put into exile in Assyria. So they became displaced peoples. They were dispersed throughout the nations back then. And now at this Feast of Pentecost is Jesus the ascended Lord who brings the Jews from all the different nations, the dispersed Jews, and he brings them into Jerusalem. What happened is, of course, after so many generations, they learned the language of that country. So they would not know Hebrew anymore. Probably not. Most of them would not know Hebrew. It's kind of like you coming to Canada, we coming to Canada. And then maybe two or three generations, you don't remember Hindi, you don't remember Punjabi, we don't remember Dutch, don't remember Urdu, it vanishes. So yeah, these Jews had come from all the different parts of the world. The second, and this is really clear here, it says here in the Bible, the apostles spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what were these Tongues. It was not a heavenly language, right? It wasn't gibberish. It was an understood language. These tongues were the different languages of the people. The apostles were speaking foreign languages that they had never learned. And that's where the miracle comes in. They had never learned these languages, and now they find themselves speaking it. That was a supernatural gift of the Spirit. And that's why the people could hear them speaking in their own languages, the wonderful works of God. They heard about Jesus. That's what preaches, uh, Peter preaches about. You read Acts 2, 14 through 41. He preaches about Jesus crucified. Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus ascended to the throne of God. And now these same Jews who were convicted, who were converted to Christ, could go back to their nations and spread the good news of Jesus. And third, read Genesis 10. It's so closely connected. We should read Acts 2 in the light of the table of nations listed in Genesis 10. And what do you read there? You read the list of the descendants of Noah. Okay, Really, the descendants of the three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The whole chapter consists of the descendants of those three sons of Noah after the flood. There were the only three sons living on the earth in that day. And it spells out all the peoples that came from them. And now in Acts 2, Luke includes in his list the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Elamites. You'll see that word Elam in Genesis 10. Libya and Egypt. Right? Those are the descendants of Ham. Rome, that would be the descendants of Japheth. We see the representative nations of the three sons of Noah. This table of nations shows one thing. The Spirit of God begins to build a house, a church, which includes all the nations of the earth, the new Israel of God. Think of our own local context. God is sending the nations to us today. We don't have to go out to the nations anymore. They're here. And God is making it so easy for us. He puts them right in our backyard, right in our neighborhood. We don't have to go far away. We don't have to spend a lot of money. We still have freedom to share the good news and you look at our city and what a great 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 need you hear the cries do you not do we not you hear people you see people people are angry people are bitter people are greedy people are fighting people are suicidal people are weeping people are in the depths of their despair or think of Texas, not in this city. This past week, a 70-year-old student <laughs> decides to take his gun and kill 10 people and injuring 13 others. We need to give them the light. God has endowed us with his spirit. He has given us his word. You know, more money, the government throwing more money at the problem is never a solution. The gods in the temples have no answer. The gods are dead. The temples are dead places. They have no power. They're lifeless. God has set us here. How are we responding to him? How are we responding to the work of his spirit? He's given us new life for witness. You have his word. You have his spirit. All believers have his Holy Spirit. By God's grace, we have the answer. Beautiful. He has freed us. Let's share this joy. Let's share this freedom with others. Invite. You can say, come. Come to church. Come here, Jesus. Speak of the wonderful works of God. And you know what? When people are converted, chains are loosed. Pride is overthrown. Jealousy is overthrown. Anger is overthrown. Chains are loosed. Slaves are set free. The Spirit gives new life. Producing those fruits of righteousness and holiness within us. A very powerful thing. Yes, let's put in the sickle of the word and pray to the Lord of the harvest. The table of nations. And finally, we see the reversal of Babel. Here we go back to Genesis 11. And if you go back to Genesis 11, what do you read there? Mankind began to build a tower. For what purpose? To reach God and to make a name for himself. And they proudly ascend to heaven. And they say, come, let us build. They try to build one unified kingdom on earth. And they try to do that in their own strength. Yeah, pride comes before the fall. What does the Lord say? Come, let us go down. And what does he do? He confuses that one language. Remember, there was one language in the world in those days. One kingdom. And God confuses that one language, the people of Babel, and the nations are scattered. They no longer understand each other. Peace is gone. Unity is broken, broken. Racism begins. Well, perhaps it was there before, but it's only accentuated. Brothers and sisters, the blessing of Pentecost is the dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. Well, at Babel, the human languages were confused, the nations are scattered, What happens in Jerusalem? The language barrier is miraculously overcome. And it's a sign that the nations would now come together in Christ. Not a kingdom built on human strength, but a kingdom built on the divine power of God by his Spirit. That's the work of Christ by his power in the Holy Spirit. You see at Babel, Earth proudly tries to ascend to heaven. In Jerusalem, heaven humbly descends to earth, saying, here, it's all here for you. You have everything you need, all the resources. The new life is found in Christ. The Spirit gives it for witness. You know, this is really the true United Nations. This is the true United Nations, which began at Pentecost. And that's being established on earth in Christ by His Spirit. Every time you think of United Nations, the true United Nations, think of the church. Because the other United Nations that you hear in the world on the news, is not the church, it's Babel. It really is. God will bring it down. God will bring it down. They cannot establish unity in the world. They will never establish peace in the world because it's from the strength of man it comes from the earth. God will bring it down. God will humble them. Because it comes, the true United Nations comes from the Lord, the church. That's the answer. That's the answer. The United Nations of the world has no power, has no life. It has no breath of God. For true peace, the nations must look to Christ. Because what is peace, first of all? It's first of all being reconciled to God through faith in Christ, as reconciliation with God. And you look at Pentecost, you see all the proofs that God has reconciled himself to man in Christ. You see the evidence. God breathing his breath into people from all the different nations. God bringing his people into his body. God bringing his word to his people. You see the fruit of love The joy, the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All the powerful fruit of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit creates the body of Christ. You see that beautiful life. And the Spirit shows us that in Acts 2, 46, 47. You see the beauty of her worship and her witness. Look at verse 46, 47 continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Yeah, the life of Christ in the church won people over to Christ. See here the gift of the Spirit, the power of new life, for witness witness so that there may be more worshipers of the true and living god witness what Christ is doing also amongst us you see his power the power of his word in changed lives you see it overthrown you see you see how the word overthrows bitterness how the word overthrows hatred how it produces peace how it produces unity. Yes, Christ is the only road to life. Did we say that? In a city that says there are many roads, will we stand up? Will we stand in our witness? Christ is the only way to life. We need to share that. Because all the other roads lead to death and burning forever and ever. And that's why when the Spirit works in our hearts, we too can pray with the prophet Isaiah. Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens, that you would break open the heavens, that you would come down, that you would make your name known, that the nations may tremble at your presence. You see, when he is your life, you are his witness. The two go together. They cannot be separated. When when he is your life, you are his witness. Yeah, that shows in our life, doesn't it? To have one is to be the other. Yes. And that's seen in our confidence as we look forward, as we anticipate the great day of Christ's return. And on that day of his great return, Christ will gather a great multitude, the greatest harvest there have ever been. There'll be a multitude of believers. Peoples from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Revelation 7, verse 9. Beautiful. Beautiful. Something to look forward to. Better days are coming. There's more coming. Beautiful things. We may look forward to that. We may anticipate that. Because Christ will throw all the chaff into the fire. And then he, with his church, will enter the new creation. The new creation, which will be this world. Praise be to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the glory of his grace, for the power of his word, and for the growth of his kingdom on earth. Amen.